everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. Been thinking about the uh, Critters series of movies lately, and how I wish it had a better critical reception. Not that I think it necessarily deserves one. I mean, they're not bad movies, certainly, and are in the upper tier of movies that were, I think, cashing in on the gremlins craze of horror comedies about small monsters. Definitely a cut above ghoulies, say, or munchies. Although, I will say, the video box cover did not terrify me in the same way that the one for Ghoulies did, so I guess well-played Ghoulies in that regard? To be fair, I've never actually seen Ghoulies because the video box cover scared me so much, but in my mind, it's kind of the preteen, dirty, gene kung fu kangaroos to gremlins, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Anyway... The reason I wish that the Critters line of movies was held in better regard was so that at some point there could be a Criterion Collection re-release of the Critters franchise and somebody would have to think long and hard whether or not they should just go ahead and call it the Critterian Collection. Anyway, you guys didn't come here to listen to me rank the various movies that were cashing in on the craze of Gremlins regardless of whether I've seen them or not. Although, if that is something you'd be interested in listening to, let me know. And also, I am aware that the script for Critters was written before Gremlins went into production, but I think it's fair to say that the movie's marketing played up some of the superficial similarities between the two films. Anyway, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Jay Logston. If this were a podcast about Tennessee, we'd talk about Tannehill and Henry. So to all football fans, let me just say this. I'm sorry. Now, here's a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Jay. I wonder if there is anyone who tuned into this thinking it was a podcast about the Tennessee Titans and is still listening. Either because they like the show or because they're like, well, I'm sure after he talks about this Nightwing guy, he's gonna get around to talking about the Mariota trade. Anyway... Don't put words in my mouth, Jay. I'm not sorry. Also, thanks again for putting those words in my mouth. And if you guys would like to put words in my mouth, send in a synopsis rhyme. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 21, June 1986. On Top of the World. Written by Marv Wolfman. Drotted by Eduardo Barreto. Inkted by Romeo Tangal and Pablo Marcos. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call. Wonder Girl. Speedy. Aqualad. Hooray! Robin. The Jason Todd one. The Flash. The Wally West one. Hawk. Nightwing. And Raven. Previously in the New Teen Titans. Dick Grayson, a.k.a. Nightwing, just turned 20 and had a really bad birthday. After watching his girlfriend Starfire get married to another guy on a distant planet, the angsty acrobat returned to Earth to find the Titans in a state of disarray. 
Cole was dead, Cyborg was injured, Beast Boy was off looking for his magic hat-addicted stepfather, Raven had been kidnapped by an evil cult, and, perhaps most distressingly of all, Wonder Girl's husband, Professor Terry Long, was having difficulty writing a paper. Poor Terry. When Dick learned the tribulations of his titular teenage teammates, he did his best to live up to his first name. The tempestuous Tumblr lashed out at Donna and told her that as interim team leader, she was to blame for all of the disasters that had befallen the Titans during his absence. Donna felt this assessment was unfair, so she punched Nightwing through the wall of his apartment. Hooray! After brushing the sheetrock dust from his oversized lapels, Dick stormed off, vowing to find Raven and rescue her from the evil cult without the gang's assistance. A tearful Donna headed back to her apartment, intending to do her husband's homework for him. But when she arrived, she found that she had a message from the Titans' delightfully named government liaison, King Faraday, requesting that the team embark on a top-secret mission. Seeing as the rest of the current Titan roster was unavailable, the post-adolescent Amazon thumbed through her Super Rolodex and called up Dick's replacement as Robin, Jason Todd, and former Titans, Speedy, Wally West, Hawk, and Aqualad. Hooray! This ragtag new-slash-old Teen Titans team headed to Switzerland to meet with Agent Faraday and be briefed on their upcoming mission. When they landed, Faraday told them that a group of ambassadors from the Soviet Union and the United States were planning a clandestine meeting on a mountaintop to negotiate a peace treaty. The SIA, the fictional intelligence agency that Faraday works for, had gotten information that an old foe of the Titans, the sexy international assassin Cheshire, had been hired to kill the delegates at this upcoming secret summit on a secret summit, so they had called the gang to provide security. The old new team got off to a rocky start, as they were all dealing with some difficult personal issues. Wally was struggling to live up to the legacy of his dead mentor, Barry Allen. Aqualad was grieving the death of his girlfriend, Aquagirl. Wonder Girl was insecure after the dressing down Dick gave her, and also felt bad about not doing her husband's homework for him. Jason was like 12. Hawk was an asshole. Also, his brother Dove died, but mostly he was just an asshole. And Speedy had been uncharacteristically quiet ever since he found out that Cheshire was involved in this mission. Hmm... The traumatized troop of Titans settled into their chalet for the evening, but soon found themselves under attack by Cheshire and her minions. During the ensuing scuffle, Donna had to stop Hawk from murdering a minion, and Cheshire took advantage of the distraction and shot Wally in the shoulder with a missile, issuing as she did so a cryptic message warning the Titans to stay away from tomorrow's peace talks. Naturally, the gang didn't listen, and the next day, as Wally stayed back to recover from his injury, Wonder Girl, Hawk, Robin, Aqualad, and Speedy took a gondola to the mountain peak where the summit was to take place. While their trio of teammates established a perimeter around the meeting hall, Robin and Speedy hung back to guard the gondola. As they settled in, the boy Wonder asked a beleaguered bowman what was bugging him, but before Speedy could answer, Cheshire and her thugs showed up. The feline-inspired femme fatale pulled out a fancy laser gun, aimed it at Roy, and informed the alarmed archery aficionado that not only did she intend to kill him, but that he was also the father of her child. Gadzooks! How could Roy and Cheshire have a child together? Will Nightwing remember his Teen Titans training when he attempts to rescue Raven? And most importantly, will Terry Long ever finish that paper? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, um, they had sex. That's, you know, where babies come from.
Well, he walks heedlessly into a trap without having any real plan, so I'd say that's a yes. And no. No, he never will. Hooray! Robin looks a little confused about the bombshell that Cheshire just dropped, and is like, how could this happen? So she goes on to explain that when an international super assassin and an undercover government agent slash archery-themed costume adventurer who is attempting to infiltrate her organization love each other very much, they get in the bed and share a very special kind of hug. Then they fuck. Then, the next day, the undercover agent disappears, and the assassin learns that not only was he not the criminal he was pretending to be, but that he moonlights as a colorfully clad crime fighter and used to be a teen titan. Then, nine months later, the assassin has a baby and vows to track down the government agent slash arrow enthusiast and murder him. Roy protests that he had no idea she was pregnant, and only left Cheshire because if he had stayed he would have had to arrest her, which he didn't want to do on account of he had fallen in love with her. While Cheshire is distracted by Roy's declaration of love, Robin kicks the gun out of her hand. Speedy tells the bird-themed boy to go outside and help the others while he squares off with the apparent mother of his child. Cheshire is like, I'm totally going to murder you. Roy is like, oh, okay. Then Cheshire's like, okay, I guess I'm not going to murder you, but if you follow me outside, then I'm going to murder you. Roy goes, I am totally going to follow you outside. Also, please tell me what's going on. Cheshire replies, I'll never tell you what's going on, but it's not what it seems and you'd be much better off if you and your pals just stay out of the way. Then she runs outside. True to his word, Speedy follows. In the area outside the meeting hall, the new old titans are mixing it up with Cheshire's goons. The good guys are doing pretty well for themselves, but then Hawk tosses one of the goons off a cliff and Donna has to go rescue the goon from falling to his death and everything in general just goes all higgledy-piggledy. In the confusion following Donna's departure, Cheshire makes her way to the meeting hall. Roy catches up to her and the two former lovers have a standoff. Speedy shoots Cheshire in the shoulder, but not before the agile assassin manages to toss a grenade into the building. Oops. Aqualad rushes into the building to retrieve the grenade, startling the diplomats. The undisputed greatest of all Teen Titans uses one of his sea-strengthened arms to toss the grenade over the mountain. Hooray! Everyone waits in anticipation for the grenade to explode but it never does. Interesting. Roy goes up to Cheshire and is like, sorry about shooting you in the shoulder. She's like, well, not sorry about slashing your chest with my poison claws. Roy's all like, you never slashed my chest with your OW! Because she slashes him across the chest with her claws, then runs off and makes her way down the mountain. The gang gathers around Roy and waits for him to die, but he doesn't because there was no poison on Cheshire's claws. Hmm. King Faraday pops up and is like, Well, that was a royal fuck-up. Get it? Royal? Because my name's King? Never mind. The thing is, I'm pretty sure that wasn't a real assassination attempt. It was just staged to make us look like chumps. See, the Soviets only agreed to come to these meetings on the condition that nobody knew about it and there was no security. But then, the SIA heard that Cheshire was going to blow the place up, so we covertly hired you guys to guard the place without telling the diplomats about it. You know, because what's more inconspicuous than teenagers wearing brightly colored hot pants in a snowstorm? Only, now that the Russians saw that we were here, they're all pissed off about it and we look stupid. Sorry about that. Just then, a diplomat pops out of the building and says, I am Russian and I am all pissed off about this. You Americans look stupid. Fair enough. Down the mountain a bit, outside the chalet where the Titans spent the night, 
Wally is wandering around thinking about how much he hates getting shot in the shoulder. He runs into Cheshire, who is like, I know, right? Want to give me a hand yanking this arrow out of my shoulder? Wally declines the opportunity to commiserate with a fellow shoulder injury survivor and instead punches Cheshire through a plate glass window. Ouch. The no longer junior Wizard of Wiz settles in to wait for the other Titans to arrive so they can bring Cheshire to justice. But before his teammates get there, a different group of costumed characters arrives to retrieve the injured assassin. It's Mother Mayhem and the Acolytes of the Church of Blood. The Church of Blood? But aren't they the strangely sanguinary sinister sect run by an occasionally dead but surprisingly spry Septicentennial that kidnapped Raven a few issues ago? Yup. And haven't they also been brainwashing the Titan's old pal Zack Wingman, the amnesiac alien angel, which I didn't mention in the previously in the new Teen Titans thing because I forgot whether it was going to come up in this issue, but just remembered that it does? Again, yup. But what are they doing here? Well, rescuing Cheshire, who it turns out they hired for this mission. And also they're shooting Wally in the shoulder again. Dang, he hates that. The rest of the Titans eventually arrive back at base camp to find a badly re-injured Wally, who fills them in on what happened. They begin their long, awkward flight back to the States, which gives them all plenty of time to think about what a bad, bad job they did. Some news reports they listened to during the flight confirm their fears that the tide of public opinion has once again turned against our titular teenage team. Their recent escapade is being reported as a fiasco that set the peace process back at least a decade. When they finally land back at their T-shaped skyscraper headquarters, they find that the distinctive building is surrounded by protesters who, for some reason, seem to think that matters of international diplomacy ought not to be handled by flamboyantly attired teenagers, regardless of how good at punching and kicking said teenagers might be. Aw, oh, come on, be reasonable, protesters. I mean, these teens are really good at punching and kicking. While the new old titans are being greeted by their less-than-adoring public, in the Baltic nation of Zandia, which the Church of Blood calls home, Mother Mayhem and her followers celebrate a successful mission. It turns out, the Russian ambassador who denounced our heroes was secretly a member of the cult and was following their orders. Hearing Mayhem's gloating from the hallway, Zack Wingman pops his head in the door and is like, What's going on? Mother Mayhem tells him, We're just stoked because you're going to finally fulfill your destiny soon. Zack asks, my destiny to flap around and be happy? And she's like, no, your destiny to resurrect the dead. And Zack's like, oh, okay. In another part of the church, the generally more dungeony part of the church, Raven and her mom, Arella, are locked in their cell. Arella's pretty bummed out about the whole thing, so Raven says, come here, let me use my powers to chill you out. Which is nice, but then there's some creepy laughter, so maybe it's not nice. Raven isn't the only Teen Titan hanging out in Zandia right now, either. Dick Grayson is intent on rescuing his erstwhile teammate, and even more intent on doing it all by himself without any help from anybody. The independently-minded aerialist has grown a beard and dressed like an army guy or a security guard or something, and figures that infiltrating the compound and snagging Raven should be a breeze. The confident crime fighter thinks to himself, I am such a smart, smart boy. I, I mean, man. I know last time I tried to break into this place, I got spotted right away. But this time, I had some scientist buddies rig up a device that alters the rhythm of my heartbeat, so Blood's followers will never know it's me. 
Suckers. As his truck rolls through the gate, a silent alarm goes off in the church's high-tech control center. The acolyte monitoring the station goes, Hey, uh, Mother Mayhem, looks like that Grayson kid's back. You, uh, you want I should kill him or something? Mother Mayhem smiles sinisterly and says, No, that's okay. Just let him keep walking heedlessly into my trap. That's kind of his thing. Back at the Titan Tower, the new old team prepares to go their separate ways. Donna tries to get in touch with her husband Terry, but is having trouble tracking him down. She finally gets word that he's in a meeting with the president of his college. She heads downtown to meet him there. Turns out, the meeting isn't going so great for Terry. He hasn't written anything in years, and the college has finally had enough. The president's like, Sorry, Terry, but there's a state law that says I have to fire you. Go clean out your desk. And try not to marry any students on your way out. Terry seems pretty bummed out, but he says that he gets it. As he leaves the office, though, he gets increasingly angry and thinks to himself, You know whose fault this is? Ooh, ooh, I know this one. It's your fault, Terry. It's you. But let's see what he thinks. This is all Donna's fault. If she would have just done my job for me, then I could still have my job despite not having done a significant part of it for three or four years. What's the point of marrying a teenage student if they're not going to write papers for you that you can take credit for? I'm out of here. When Donna arrives on campus moments later, Terry is nowhere to be found. She rushes home, but he's not there either. For some reason, this bums Donna out. Weird. While Donna pines for her ex-professor husband, Roy charters a flight to Hong Kong to track down Cheshire, who he once knew as Jade, and the baby he just found out he fathered. He finds them in a palatial estate that Cheshire shares with her mentor-slash-butler, Wen Chang, who, despite what the extraneous apostrophe would indicate, is not from space. Roy is like, Hi Jade, sorry again about shooting you. Can I see my daughter? Cheshire-slash-Jade is like, No. Roy asks, Like, actually no? Or is this like all those times you told me you were going to murder me and then didn't? Jade sighs and is like, the second one, I guess. She's in the back room. Her name is Leon. Roy heads back and finds a red-haired baby. He picks her up and they smile at each other. It's cute. Back in Zandia at the Church of Blood, Dick Grayson uses the cover of night to sneak over to Raven's cell. He beats up a couple of guards on the way, but other than that, finds it's pretty easy going. He opens the cell door and tells Arella and Raven that he's there to rescue them. Then he gets a closer look at Raven's hooded face and is like, Holy crap, Raven! What the fuck happened to your face? You look awful! Wow. It's a shame you couldn't join the rest of the team on that recent mission, Dick. That kind of diplomacy might have gone a long way towards sweet-talking those ambassadors. On a monitor in the Church of Blood's control center, Mother Mayhem watches the scene and gloats that everything is going according to her plan. A few days later, back in New York, Donna says goodbye to Wally, who has just been released from the hospital. She still hasn't heard anything from Terry, and is pretty upset about his disappearance. She heads into her apartment to brood some more, and is surprised to see that Terry's there waiting for her. Turns out, after he got fired, he decided that he needed a little time to clear his head, so he drove to Cape Cod to, quote, look at the ocean for a couple of days. Donna's so relieved to see him that she doesn't bring up the fact that they have the ocean in New York, too. And that while Terry may have writer's block, that affliction doesn't generally apply to jotting down a note to your wife to let her know that you've left town for a few days. Instead, Donna starts to apologize for not writing Terry's paper for him, but he cuts her off and is like, 
No, it's all my fault. Yeah, see, that's what I said. He goes on to say that he's never been able to finish anything and that he had been working on that paper he wanted Donna to help him with for over a year before he met her, and he didn't write it then either. She asks him what he's going to do now that he's fired, and he says that maybe he'll become a researcher or work in a bookstore or work for a publisher, or that maybe he'll just take some time and think. Yeah, I'm betting he goes for that last option. Anyway, he apologizes for being such a dickhole, and Donna forgives him, and they make out gross. Huh. Now that Speedy's a dad, I wonder which gimmick arrow he's going to invent first. One that alerts him if anyone touches the thermostat? Or one that plays Steely Dan songs for him? Hmm. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Cory. Cory, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. How are you going? Oh, I'm doing okay for the most part. I think I'm a little bit over-caffeinated. Me too. I switched to uh, what I call baby minotaur coffee, you know, because it's half-calf, to try to keep the anxiety down, but I've now gotten to the point where I'm just drinking twice as much of it, so we'll see how that works out. Ah, yeah, I'm on cup number three of a French press press batch a batch of french <laughs> press that i forgot about for a few minutes extra so Ooh. it came out real strong very nice that's some double french uh uh-huh <laughs> that's some like behind the bleachers shit huh isn't that where people go to french i don't know oh i guess i don't know i did we didn't i didn't have bleachers in high school that i know about I think you would have known about them. You went to, like, uh, the Multnomah Learning Center. The Metropolitan Learning Center. I'm sorry. Yeah, you went to, like, a very hippie high school. I don't... They wouldn't have had a football team, would they? No, I did independent study in skateboarding for my PE credit. Nice. Mm-hmm. I could see you guys having, like, maybe an ultimate Frisbee team. Nope. Uh, bad Badminton. Really? Yep. And I don't think... It was a team in the sense that they competed against other teams. I think it was just they had badminton. They didn't have cheerleaders? No, not that I know of. That's unfortunate. Well, do you want to talk about a comic book? Yeah, let's do that. What did you think of this comic book? I enjoyed it. I feel like the past few episodes we've had comments along the lines of not a lot happened and this is the opposite of that there was so many things happening there really were it not only wraps up the old new teen titans storyline but it also continues or introduces some new elements too so yeah there's a lot going on both in terms of tying up loose ends and reintroducing plot points I think the only dangling one that it didn't hit on was what Starfire and her new husband are up to, but man, there's a lot going on here. Yeah, and the other thing that was really notable about this issue for me, and I feel terrible saying it, was I think this is the first Perez cover that I didn't really enjoy. Really? What was it you weren't crazy about about it? It seemed like, at first I thought, it had been, this is going to sound overly harsh, I thought it had been maybe scanned in at a little bit of a, a way that it became stretched, but I realized it was just a perspective 
particularly in Cheshire's face, where it's like maybe the camera's kind of, or the viewer is supposed to be at a slight angle, but it sort of looks like you grabbed the top right of the image and kind of pulled on it and stretched out the aspect ratio in a little bit of a weird way. Huh. I'm not getting that about it. I mean, maybe in terms of the silhouette of her sleeve, like it plays with that a little bit where it shows a whole image in there and it doesn't really follow the sleeve. But I thought her face looked like, you know, a face. Really? To me, it looks like from the top right, it's like just being kind of pulled and stretched that way. Maybe she's just doing one of the like a evil, like arching one eyebrow bigger than the other. I think that's part of it. I think it's a pretty good cover. I think it's probably done with pastels, right? Yeah, pastels or, or perhaps colored pencils, like Prismacolors. But I think it's pretty striking, and I do like the image that is playing out in the green that kind of merges into her sleeve of the uh, the Titans being wiped out in the mountaintop. I think it's an interesting cover. Also, this issue, including the cover, is one of the first times when it's been really noticeable that Cheshire is drawn as Asian. Yep. It's been mentioned before, but she had always, I think, been drawn in a way that she just looked like all of the other white characters. And in this issue, both in the interior art and on the cover, it is made clear that she is supposed to be, I, I think it describes her heritage as being half Vietnamese, half French, although it should come to no surprise that Hawk describes her as that Chinese girl. Yeah. But I think that's interesting that we had such different impressions of the cover. Mm. Maybe I was just distracted by the really badly executed Daisy or Gerber Daisy tattoo she has on her boob. <laughs> yeah, and that's something that I had never noticed about her before, but, like, she has a bad prison tattoo of a Daisy on one boob. Yeah. That is not a great tattoo, and <laughs> you would think that she would have access, given her nearly unlimited funds to better tattoo artists than that. But yeah, that's something that's consistent throughout this issue, and it's not something that I had ever noticed about her before. Yep. But I think she's really into the tattoo, and that's why her outfit has her left shoulder and sleeve bare. Yeah, I think she wants to highlight that, that, you know, I mean, especially in like 87, I think it would be more of a statement to have a tattoo like that. So, I mean, I think she wants to show that she has a, an artsy side and that she's got, she's, you know, a little bit edgy. But still funky. <laughs> but still, yo, totally, totally. A little funky. <laughs> but really edgy. Yeah, a little bit funky. A combination of words that has been used so long to describe shoes and brunch places that it is now a phrase that should pretty much just be used to describe smells. <laughs> So speaking of Cheshire, what did you think of her depiction in this issue? Um, it was frankly kind of confusing. It seemed a little all over the place. And, and again, we've talked about this in the past where it kind of vacillates between like, I'm totally evil. Well, I'm evil, but I'm a sympathetic evil to, I have a heart of gold in there, maybe. Yeah, it goes back and forth on that. And like even the holding pattern of her feelings towards Roy. We're like, at the beginning of it, she's like, that does it. I've tracked you down and now I'm going to kill you. 
And then she almost immediately goes to, okay, I'm not going to kill you, but I'm still never going to let you know my secrets. Okay, here's my secrets, but you know what? I am going to kill you. No, I'm not going to kill you. That part was all over the map, and I'm always more than a little bit frustrated with the narrative technique of, okay, this character is going to reveal just enough information that it is to her detriment to do it, but not enough that it will help anyone else. Mm -hmm. Very frustrating. Yeah. When she's talking to Roy and is like, I'm going to betray the confidence of my employer and tell you that this is not what it seems and you should just let me go do this. At that point, you are being unprofessional. You have betrayed the trust of your employer. Why wouldn't you just go that extra second and tell him what is going on? Yeah. Also, your credibility is, I feel, eroded when you're like, um, you know, you do the waffling that we just talked about. Like, I'm going to kill you. Wait, no, maybe I love you. But anyway, totally trust me, because if you leave this room, <laughs> it's going to be totally bad. Okay, bye. Like, I probably would not have hung out there if I were uh, speedy either. No, I'm not sure if I would have shot her with an arrow, but I probably wouldn't have hung out there anymore. Also, is this the first time we've seen him use an arrow-shaped arrow? Was this the first time you've run out of boxing gloves? I was actually confused by that because when he shot her with the arrow, I really missed it. There was just too much going on on that page. So when she showed up later in the issue with the arrow sticking out of what looked like her chest and was like, Flash, you have to save me. And he's like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to punch you. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wait, did she stab herself in, an, in the chest with an arrow to like lend credence to this play acting scene? And I was pretty impressed with that kind of dedication to, like, method acting. And then when I reread it, I was like, oh, no, she did get shot with an arrow. Yeah, it's it was confusing, though, because it's the exact same green as her outfit. Right, so I thought that was, like, one of her accessories, you know? Yeah, it's a weird coincidence. Or is it? Maybe that's one of the things that she and Roy initially bonded over. Mm, they really like that shade of green. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Could be. I gotta say, it must have taken her, like, 20 seconds to figure out what Roy's secret identity was. Once she knows that he's a government agent and maybe has some kind of super heroic background, she must have just been like, well, I'm looking for a superhero who won't shut the fuck up about archery. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. Green Arrow's too old. Oh, okay. Yeah, definitely speedy. Yep see what else about Cheshire. In the last issue, we talked about the wardrobe malfunction when she was on the cable thing with the jetpack that was saved by the colorist. Mm -hmm. And in this issue, there's a similar one, but they drew her underpants, but only covering one cheek. <laughs> and I thought to myself, was that just like a weird 80s thing? Did they just have like one cheek underpants? They might have. I mean, it was a time of asymmetrical fashion. I feel like maybe that was a thing they were trying out for a while. Because her outfit's kind of that way too, right? With the one sleeve long and no sleeve on the other side. Mm -hmm. But it's a, it's a weird look. And she's flying down this uh, cable with a jetpack on. And, you know, you see it from the backside. One of my biggest complaints about this in the last issue were just people not dressing for the weather. And 
I just thought, man, that one-cheeked underpants get-up is going to be really uncomfortable when you're fighting and fleeing and doing all this stuff. Yeah, it is that kind of commitment to costume that I think is maybe what puts her over the top as a international assassin. I mean, I would have gone like the little kid on Halloween thing. I would have just put a big jacket on over my costume. Mm-hmm. Yep. Although I have heard that you lose something like 60% of your body heat through your left butt cheek. So maybe those are just some very strategically placed underpants. We talked a little bit about Roy's commitment to archery and arrow-themed things and how it probably didn't take Cheshire all that long to figure out which hero who made, who one time shot a parachute onto a monkey that was falling out of a tree because you know he brought that up. He actually was. What kind of gimmick arrow-based parenting do you think Speedy is going to be doing? Like... What would be the kind of arrows that he's going to use as a single dad? Well, you know, he's kind of a dick, right? So I think he's just going to have like one of those soft boxing glove arrows. And when the kid gets too far away, just boom, just knock him down. Wow. Okay. I was thinking he was probably going to try to shoot diapers onto that kid. Nope. And uh, also like those, you know, those kid leashes that you see sometimes at the airport? Mm-hmm. He's probably got a like the same kind of uh, lasso arrow that he tried to use on Cheshire. He'll probably have one of those for the kid. Like if he, oh. he's like, oh, I got, I got a. Last time I knocked him down, people kind of gave me a hard time about that. So <laughs> I'm gonna use this lasso arrow. Yeah, there's a, guys, calm down. There's a lot of padding in that boxing glove arrow. He loves it. <laughs> Look at that. He's laughing. She. Oh, that's right. I'm confused about this baby. It's not quite like uh, medieval painting adult head babies, but it does have a little bit of a weird grown-up face. Yeah, I get it, man. Babies are hard to draw. It looks like a uh, Rodney Dangerfield baby a little bit. I mean, to be fair, a lot of babies look kind of like Rodney Dangerfield. Like that like large-eyed, surprised look? Mm-hmm. And also, I don't give them any respect. Oh, they're babies. Exactly. But they've got the still preceding hairline that I think is easy to confuse with a receding hairline. Kind of gives him an old man countenance. Mm-hmm. So I- I'm not going to knock the art on that. No, I no, I'm not knocking the art. Just saying it looks like a little old man. That's all. Fair enough. Overall, I thought the art in this issue was actually very, very good. Once again, the pencils are by Eduardo Barreto and the inks are by Romeo Tangal. But they're by Romeo Tangal and Pablo Marcos, who is an artist that we've seen before, both in this title and I think in The Defenders recently. He's also the, was the penciler of our least favorite art issue of the original Teen Titans run, the one that introduced the, the old new Teen Titans? Gosh, that, that nomenclature is getting a little bit confusing now. <laughs> yeah, it is. I know what you mean. Yeah, it was the issue that introduced the Teen Titans team when they came back in the later half of the 70s and had their headquarters on a Long Island nightclub. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was a, a a real poopy issue. And uh, he did the art on that and it was not very good, but I think he does a great job with the inks on this along with Romeo Tengal. So that is nice to see. Yeah, indeed. It could easily be an issue because there's so many panels with, like, a bunch of stuff going on. Like, 
you know, five pairs of people having a fight. Like, it could mm-hmm. be really kind of muddy and hard to read, but it, it stays really pretty clean. Yeah. So, Dick does a pretty shitty job in this issue, and it was pretty amusing for me the extent to which he was like, all right, last time I went to this place, I got caught, but I've got a device that changes my heart rhythm, so now they'll never see me coming. First of all, that sounds like an incredibly dangerous device. And second of all, it does not work even a little bit. Because, like, the very next panel to him saying, they'll never catch me this time, is a cut to Mother Mayhem saying, ah, well, here he comes. Okay. Yeah, I almost wonder if it had the opposite effect. <laughs> like, Star Labs were like, oh, they can't find you because of your heart. Oh, yeah, we've got something for that. And it was just like this super miscommunication. Yeah, I was wondering, honestly, if they just, like, strapped this giant cybernetic device onto his chest. And then they were like, oh, well, there's a guy with a giant cybernetic device on his chest. Well, you know what? Let's at least look into this. Yeah, no, he fell right into their trap. He did. I did appreciate his new disguise, which is a beard. And he looks kind of like Riker from uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. And I appreciated that. Yeah, beard and a almost completely unbuttoned UPS uniform. <laughs> exactly. What I didn't appreciate as much was his reaction to seeing Raven. He gets her in her cell, and he looks at her and says, Oh my god, what happened to you? I know, real Donna Troy school of <laughs> burn victim counseling. <laughs> yeah. First of all, that's just never an appropriate thing to say about somebody's appearance. But... The fact that she could very much answer like, well, long story short, I died killing my dad and saving the universe and then was kidnapped by a bunch of lepers and then I was thrown in a dungeon by an evil blood worshiping cult. Oh, what's your fucking excuse? They'd be like, well, I had a bad birthday and the girlfriend I never committed to left me. Mm -hmm. Raven wins. Hands down. But... Is it Raven? I mean, in the the panels preceding leading up to this, there was the part where Raven's mom is freaking out. They're locked in the cell together. And Raven's like, oh, come here, I'll make you feel better. And I just figured she's going to do her empath thing. Mm -hmm. But then the next caption is something to the effect of like that there is soft laughter heard, which I didn't get that. My read on that was that the soft laughter that was heard was the Church of Blood people because this was what they wanted to have happen. They want Raven to use her powers. But maybe I'm off on that. Maybe they're implying that Trigon's back in some way or something. Okay, that makes that makes way more sense, your take on it, because I was like, wait, did Raven just give her mom a hug and be like, knock, knock, <laughs> and like, tell her a, a stupid joke to make her feel better? Probably not. The sound of polite laughter is heard. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I, I think it is, like, the evil, like, if it was a movie from the 70s, superimposed, bad person laughter. So, yeah, my take on that was that it was Mother Mayhem monitoring this because just, like, everything that ever happens in these bizarre, maniacal Rube Goldberg device plots that the Church of Blood sets up, everything is going according to their plan. Even when they get thwarted, that's what they wanted to have happen. That was the way that I read that. Speaking of the Church of Blood's uh, nonsensical plans, man, that Zach Wingman's a goof. Oh, 
yeah, he just needs to stop letting Mother Mayhem boss him around. Well, he needs to pay attention to what's happening around him, because she is just, like, chuckling maniacally to herself and saying, like, Excellent, everything is going according to my sinister plan. And he's like, My plan to be free? <laughs> no? Where are you getting that from? And she, and she even is just like, No? Your plan to resurrect the dead. He's like, oh, I guess that sounds fun, too. Yeah. No, that's that's what I mean, though. Like, he's constantly like, oh, this makes me really uncomfortable. And she's like, no, it doesn't. He's like, oh, okay. I guess it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of goofs, uh, what do you think of Terry Long's bullshit in this issue? Oh, man. At first, when he's like, blames Donna for his getting fired due to his ineptitude, I was, mm -hmm. of course, just really mad at him. And I think the way that he goes away to take space to process what he's going through is really selfish because he didn't leave a note and she was worried, Donna was worried about him. But the fact that he did come around to realize that he was a real chump and his inability to get things done was something he needed to own, sort of. <laughs> yeah. It went better than I thought it was going to go, let's say that. Also, she has a really cute nickname. She calls him Curly, which made me think of the Three Stooges, and so I just think of him that way now, which helps. Well, it does help things if you imagine that he is often getting poked in the eyeballs. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it is nice to hear him called Curly. My favorite part of the Terry Long subplot here, and I did appreciate that he did take some ownership of the fact that he's like, Nah, I haven't written anything for years and years before we met, so maybe I just don't know how to write. Um, but so I should still get a job in publishing or as an editor or something like that. My favorite part of his subplot, though, was that his boss fired him because he was so incompetent that it was the state law that he had to be fired. Yeah, no, that's um, that's some effective governance right there. <laughs> what law is that? It's the, the law that in the DCU, to be a tenured professor, you have to publish at least 200 pages annually. If not, you're out the door. <laughs> Sorry, it's the law. It's out of my hands. I don't know if that's federal or local, but it's, it's definitely on the book somewhere. You are such a bad professor that if I didn't fire you, I would go to jail. <laughs> that's how bad he is. Speaking of people who are unqualified for their job, why on earth is Hawk still going on missions with the Teen Titans? Man, I have a feeling after this one he's not going to be anymore. I think, I hope Donna's going to fire him. Well, if he hasn't published a paper in the past couple of years, she doesn't have any choice in the matter. But I would have thought they would have left him back at the fucking ski lodge with Wally, though. I think there's too much happening. How is there too much happening? Like, what was happening, part of what was happening, was Donna had to, in the middle of their last fight, restrain him from killing someone, and that cost them the fight. So, then she's just like, Alright, Hawk, are you gonna kill somebody if we go out again? And he's like, yes. And she's like, mm, I'm gonna take that as a no. Yeah, it's. I think she just needed to get things done. One part that I thought was interesting was she did have this revelation of, like, how horrible things were for Dove. 
because she realized, oh my goodness, this is what he's been dealing with every single time he goes somewhere with his brother. <laughs> yeah, I do have some sympathy for Dove. But, I mean, gosh, it's not even like, I mean, I'm very fond of the phrase, fool me once, fuck you, fool me twice, fuck you. But he's not even trying to fool her. This is like the story of the frog and the scorpions. Like, why would you take Hawk on this mission? Because he said he'll rock you like a hurricane? Well, no, I mean, the story of the frog and the scorpions is, uh, of course, the frog wants to hire the scorpions to play at his brother's bar mitzvah, but he knows that the song Winds of Change is going to make the kid cry, and that'll embarrass him in front of all of his friends. So he tells the scorpions not to play Winds of Change, and then second encore... The scorpions play Wings of Change. Kid cries. All the other kids make fun of him. That's why you don't hire the scorpions to play if you don't want to hear Wings of Change. It's just in their nature to play that song for their second encore. That, that's, yeah, the story of the frog and the scorpions. Yeah, but Donna didn't know that. You gotta cut her some slack. How could she not know that? Everybody knows that famous parable. <laughs> it wasn't in her uh, grief counseling syllabus. Should have been. Mm. I gotta say, I lost some respect for King Faraday in this issue. Oh, man. Bad job, dude. Yeah. I would suspect that he's going to lose his job with the SIA? Mm-hmm. What do you think SIA stands for? Uh, Secret Intelligence Agency? Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, generally, he is considered in the DCU to be an employee of the CBI, and so I guess they're just like changing one letter in all of the intelligence agencies that he works for. Mm. But it does kind of make it seem like he's just making shit up. Mm -hmm. Especially when he says that the SIA isn't part of the government. Yeah, maybe he meant like part of the three branches of government. So they have no oversight. They're not part of any system of checks or balances. Well, I, I don't know. There's no such thing as the SIA, but maybe that's the case here. I think maybe it's just a designer knockoff intelligence agency. Like, King Faraday bought his intelligence agency on Canal Street, and it looks like the CIA, but it's just going to fall apart the first time you use it. The whole plot that Cheshire was involved in, which I guess was set into motion by the Church of Blood, was such a mix of clever and completely nonsensical. I like the idea overall. And I think it kind of works like, oh, they were set up in this way and it makes them look bad in an international incident. Okay. But the idea that both sides would agree to attend a summit, but only if there was no security, is so completely bonkers. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not going to raise any red flags for anybody. Yeah. Yeah, we'll only meet you if we both show up completely unprotected on the top of a mountain in Switzerland. Right. And if that was the case going into it, why did King Faraday not tell the Titans, hey, make sure nobody sees you when we're keeping you in the same abandoned ski chalet with all of these ambassadors for a couple of days? And when you go to the top, also make sure nobody sees you or things are fucked up. Like... The fact that he withholds that information from them kind of makes everything that happens his fault. There probably would have been a way to avoid 
being seen by these people if they knew that it was such a big deal that they weren't seen by them and why? And there's no reason to withhold that information as near as I can tell. Yeah, there are some holes in the plot. Yeah, you know, King Faraday's name has bought him so much goodwill that uh, I'm starting to realize that is maybe all I like about the character. Yeah, I guess he rocks the safety glasses pretty well. Yeah, he do- he does fill out a pair of safety goggles nicely. <laughs> so a cool name. Wears goggles well. All right, he's back in my good book. <laughs> Fair enough. We talked about uh, Wally punching an injured lady in the face at super speed. What did you think of Wally in this issue? Uh, he is kind of annoying. Yeah, I mean, he is in character with the Wally we have seen in the pages of New Teen Titans for the most part, except much less efficient as a crime fighter. I mean, I get that he has like the slower super speed now, but last issue we get shot in the shoulder. This issue... He gets shot in the shoulder, and those are kind of the two things that he does in this story arc. That and lament that he's not honoring real Flash, real dead Flash, sufficiently. Yeah, and I gotta believe that that's the way everybody refers to Barry Allen. Real dead Flash. Real Flash. Okay, that's better. Yeah, uh, I mean, including in front of Wally. Mm -hmm. They're just like... Hey, hey, I think you're doing a good job filling in for real Flash. Don't be so hard on yourself. Stop trying to measure up to real Flash. Mm -hmm. They got a point. They totally do. It's weird because there are so many other depictions of Wally West that I really like. Like, we always talk about the old fun-loving syrup-chugging Wally West. Mm -hmm. But in later portrayals, both in the comic books and in, like, cartoons and stuff, I really like Wally West. But this Wally West... No bueno. Yeah, no, we're on the same page. One thing that I did like about Wally West was the fact that he says the phrase, I hate this. I hate this big. (laughs) Yeah. I noticed that too. That was pretty good. The only other thing that I wanted to mention uh, before we get into the minutiae was... For the first time in a very long time, we got picket signs. Yay, picket signs. Yeah, it has been forever, hasn't it? It really has been. Also, the nature of the picket signs that we get, the Teen Titans are being picketed by a throng of protesters who have a lot of picket signs that have absolutely nothing written on them. So... Is this like a performance art project that like the picketers are doing? Or are they just trying to convey a very vague sense of general dissatisfaction? Yeah, maybe an art installation type thing. I mean, it does make you think. I really would have liked to have heard the protesters come up with some chants to go along with their blank picket signs. Maybe something along the lines of, uh, what do we want? We don't know. When do we want it? Soon? (laughs) I think it's better if it rhymes, but yeah, that's about what we've got to work with. (laughs) Right. Yeah, they're they're all blank, actually, aren't they? Yeah, there's like six of them, and they're all totally blank. So I feel like it must have been some kind of performance art piece, and the Teen Titans just didn't get close enough, maybe, to see that the picket signs were blank and just assumed 
that they were being protested rather than they happened to be near the center of this uh, performance art thing. And man, Hawk is such a jerk. As they fly over that, he's razzing Wonder Girl about um, if she's ever considered going in for public relations, like blaming her for the fact that there's that art installation. (laughs) What a jerk. Yeah. I mean, we do see that there is definitely some backlash against the Titans. That is not Donna's fault. That is, if anybody's, King Faraday's fault. And to a lesser extent, Hawk's fault for being such a goddamn fuck-up that they didn't catch Cheshire right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into the minutiae? Uh, there are things, but I expect they'll all come up in minutiae. Well then, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, what do you feel like hitting up first? Why don't we talk about the artwork? Okay. Cory, what was your favorite panel? Gosh, as was mentioned earlier, there is so much good art in this issue, it was hard to narrow it down. I think my favorite, just in terms of the uh, graphic element of the layout, is all of page 20, where the T-shape of the tower is what's used to define the borders of all the panels. That's just a very clever layout mechanism. Yeah, that is a really nice and clever page layout, and it is done subtly enough that I didn't even notice it, but now that you point it out, it is pretty cool. Yeah, but I, I think even that is probably still in the backup category for me and you know not that i wish anybody ill will but the depiction of kid flash flash getting shot was just super well done yeah so i had said earlier that he got shot in the shoulder twice in this it looks like he is just getting shot point blank in the head was that the impression that you got yeah it was pretty vague it looked like something serious was happening you couldn't really narrow down where he was taking the hit and in particular the way that one of his hands is drawn with the fingers all crinkled up makes it look like some real bad shit is happening to him yeah between that and his scream and the fact that it looks like the gun blast is hitting him in the head must be set on stun it does seem odd that the way that the titans treat him though is it looks like he got shot in the head what should we do um can we put an extra bandage on his shoulder Because that is what they do once they get him to the plane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, he's all wrapped up like a mummy. I mean, just his shoulder parts. Right. He's all wrapped up like an asymmetrical mummy who is self-conscious about his right shoulder. (laughs) Yep, that's that's what I was trying to say. (laughs) Right, no, I got that. On the same page where we see the Flash wrapped up like that, we have my favorite panel, which I call evil cult scientist skate video Um, because we see through one of the bubbling beakers that is over a Bunsen burner, we see a close-up of one of the Church of Blood scientists, but it just looks like he's being shot through a fisheye lens like you would see in an old skate video. Mm. But it is such a cool-looking panel, and yeah, the distortion of his face through the chemicals that he is working on is really, really nicely drawn and just does lend this odd air of menace to all of the goings-on in that panel. Yeah, good call. That it does. 
And also the the panel directly after that, where you see like the headquarters of where the Church of Blood Science is going down. It is like they are in a high tech satanic church temple. It's really cool looking. Yep. Lots of really creepy giant statues amidst all the computer science things. Mm-hmm. Any other panels? I did have one backup that I called Needy Roy, and it's the one where he's saying, Stay and tell me about our child. You have to. You owe me that. And he's, like, doing the dramatic hand, and there's, like, a kind of that starburst, like, pattern behind him. Mm-hmm. It just looks like he's losing his shit. Yeah. One of the things that was done really well in this issue is... Characters that were wearing domino masks, the way that their eyes bulge out through the domino masks expressing emotion, that just really stood out to me in a way that it doesn't always. Uh, We see it on Robin's face, and we see it on Speedy's face, and it's just very, very expressive, and I thought really nicely handled. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I also really liked just the, the back and forth with that panel and the and the one that follows it where Roy is being super dramatic and Cheshire just kind of follows up coldly looking at him and says, I have given you life, I owe you nothing more, <laughs> and walks out the door. I bet Roy wrote that down and is going to use that in his parenting later on now that he's a dad. Because <laughs> that is a pretty damn good line for that. Mm-hmm. I have given you life. I owe you nothing more. Yeah. Well, speaking of characters being dramatic, in this issue, who did you have as your president of the drama club? Which character acted or overacted in the most dramatic fashion? So I had a couple runners up in the category, both um, Flash and Speedy, for the many stricken expressions that they were wearing and various hand wringings. But Mm -hmm. ultimately, Terry Long takes the day because he went to Cape Cod and stared at the ocean for three days straight. Yep. What? They don't have fucking phones in Cape Cod? I have actually been to Cape Cod in the 80s, and I know that they do have phones. I can verify that. You could have called and left a message. There is no excuse for his behavior. And you do also see when he is blaming Donna initially right after he gets fired because he's such a bad teacher, it would have been illegal for them not to fire him. You see him clenching his fist in your classic dramatic move uh, when he says, this is all her fault. What a schmuck. He was definitely my choice as well. Uh, He's like, "Where, where have you been for the past three days? I went to Cape Cod so I could look at the ocean. What, they don't have ocean in New York? They do, okay? That's where Jaws was filmed. You didn't have to go to Cape Cod. And he should have left a note. And he should have left a note, or when he got there, called. Because it wasn't like he realized he was wrong once he got back to the apartment. He knew that. That's why he came back. It's a pretty long trip. He could have called and left a message on his way back, or at any point during that trip. Also, Terry Long should not be wearing a tweed jacket with leather elbow pads. He's not a professor anymore. That jacket is for professors. This is academic stolen valor. <laughs> he's he's going to have to turn that jacket in. That's probably part of the law. It is. <laughs> the, the dean has to say, all right, Long, I want your tweed jacket and pipe on my desk by Monday. <laughs> yeah. 
Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you find most noteworthy in this issue? Donna and Donna again. My goodness. Somewhere around... Um, gosh, actually, I, I, I don't know what page it is, but you'll, you'll recognize the outfit by the description. It's the yellow leather boots, yellow leather jacket, maybe black fishnets, and a kind of fuchsia tulip-shaped skirt. Yep. That is a hell of a look. Yeah, with the, like, ascot built into the puffy-sleeved blouse. Uh, just, yeah, the yellow and fuchsia totally reminded me of, like, 90s Jubilee. It is a very distinct and very good look for Donna. And I really appreciate when the artists put that much attention into the fashion of what their characters are wearing. And, oh boy, does it come up in Donna's second outfit. Oh my gosh. I don't even know how to... Dis I was trying to figure out how to write what she was wearing, and I did come up with the phrase sweater garter legging pants. <laughs> mm hmm It is some severe power clashing that is going on here. The sweater and leggings that you're talking about look kind of like she skinned and started wearing a backgammon board <laughs> that's done in orange and red. Then over that, she has a denim vest and looks like she is wearing some denim jorts with the leggings and then also has a bright yellow plaid scarf over that. Yeah, it is striking and jarring. <laughs> there is just so much going on there. I also do like civilian Wally's jean jacket vest with the collar popped way up. Mm -hmm. That I think is a nice look. We got the deep V-U-P-S of undercover Riker dick here. <laughs> that That's a heck of a look. And uh, also, I do want to call some attention to Speedy's dad duds. When he goes to meet his daughter for the first time, he decides to wear a red V-neck sweater with a brown woven tie and a white collared shirt under it. And it is a very nice, casual dad look. It looks like he is cosplaying as a dad, and I appreciate that effort from him. Mm -hmm. He's got some nice, uh, heavily pleated and creased slacks to uh, round out the outfit. I thought those were blue jeans, so that he showed that, you know, he was, uh, he was a dad, but he was a cool dad. Maybe a little bit funky. <laughs> a little bit. Only a little bit. Yeah, I, I had all those. I also wanted to call out despite what a terrible job King Foraday did, and also, I guess, the rest of the, the government guys, they're the only ones in this whole story who dressed for weather. So That's true. Props. Yeah, in addition to his safety goggles, he is wearing a, uh, a fur-lined jacket, which is what you need if you're going to be in the snow like that. One other interesting effect that the snow had is it made it really difficult to tell who was thinking what. There were a number of panels where there were thought bubbles, and it was kind of impossible to tell who the thought was connected to because the snow was illustrated as little white circles in the same way that the connecting thought bubbles would illustrate that. And so that was kind of a weird effect, and it made me think, you know what? If you ever want to hide your thoughts from a telepath in a crowd in a comic book, go to a snowy place. Good to know. Yeah. That's a, that's a little uh, safety tip. Okay. Corey, it's time we took this party to the Bozone. 
in this issue, one instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you want to talk about? <sighs> well, I guess I just first want to say that I'm going to give Hank the benefit of the doubt that he doesn't know babushka means, you know, like grandma or older lady. Yeah. Because if he does, that's just gross because he tells one of the Soviets to take his comments and, and stick them in his babushka. He What he actually says is, shove it up your babushka, commie. <laughs> it's, it's so bad. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, babushka in Western countries uh, usually means the kerchief that would often be worn by a grandmother type but either way that is a funny weird insult and given the rest of hank's behavior and in general i think giving him the benefit of the doubt is a mistake i think he knew damn well that he was saying shove it up your grandmother commie yeah Ugh, hank so there's that there was one other zinger he had that i i liked a little better where I hadn't heard the expression ask for brains before, but that is essentially what he calls Robin in the T-Jet when mm -hmm. he asks him if he stows his brains where he sits. So that was a yep. good turn of phrase. It was. Kid, you store your brains where you sit? It did remind me, too, I have a friend who described to me one time he was back visiting his parents when he was in college, and... He was in the other room and was heading into the room where his parents were having a discussion and overheard them discussing the fact that they were about to go out to dinner. And his dad said, well, should we take shit for brains with us? <laughs> and he stuck his head in the room and said, hey, and both <laughs> his parents burst out laughing. <sighs> and so I, to this day, do not know if they knew he was there or not, and he doesn't know that either. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. So I guess what I'm saying is, I I know Hawk's son. <laughs> Were you able to find a timestamp or a show-and-tell in this issue? Yeah, I had a timestamp. It's a little bit of a stretch, so you may have to bear with me. But um, somewhere in the neighborhood of page three, New Robin makes a joke about the Flying Walendas, a acrobatic circus family mm -hmm. who had been around since the, gosh, I don't know, 50s or 60s or something. But the connection to the 80s is that there was one episode in 1983 of Family Ties where uh, Steve confronts Alex about spending his father's money on stocks. And Alex says, I'm a high school student, not a Flying Walenda. Wow. So that's what I got. Has that line just stuck with you all these years? No, I was Googling Flying Willendas to see <laughs> if I could make it fit, and that's what I came up with. Oh, man. I was about to commiserate with you because there are, like, lines from sitcoms that I saw once, like, 30 years ago that are indelibly etched into my brain. Yeah, I do actually have one from Family Ties, and it's when uh, the Justine Bateman character is sitting on the couch with her boyfriend, and uh, tells her dad that they are basking in the afterglow of shiatsu. <laughs> Very nice. I did not have to look that up. That's in my brain for some reason. The one that I always come back to is there was an episode of Perfect Strangers <laughs> in which 
Cousin Balky is making a batch of cookies that are called Bippy Bopkas. And as he is cooking the Bippy Bopkas, he sings a song that goes, When you rollin' out the dough, just make sure you roll it slow. If you roll the dough too quick, Bippy Bopkas make you sick. When you put the filling in, just make sure you wear a grin. When you smile on what you bake, Bippy Bopkas turn out swell. <laughs> now... I saw that episode once. I never watched it in syndication. I saw it as it aired. Gotta be, what, 32 years ago? Something like that. And I get that song stuck in my head all the goddamn time. I know it's to the tune of a song called Limbo Rock, and that's part of why it's so sticky. But there are many important things that I have forgotten. But that song is not going anywhere. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that is some impressive recall. The only thing I remember from that show is that if if you want to approach uh, a lady that you're interested in, don't tell her she has a great bone structure for making babies, because that's a that's another bulky maneuver. I think in general, maybe just don't comment on anybody's bone structure. Best case scenario, you sound like a serial killer. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to go well. Don't do it. No. So for timestamp. Yeah, I didn't really have a firm one. There's some of the stuff that we've talked about before. This is obviously a Cold War story. So there's that vague timestamp of it. The fashion, I think, in it definitely could constitute a timestamp. But I decided to go with a show and tell because it really did stick out to me when Aqualad is about to throw a grenade. He takes the time to stop and explain the fact that he has C-strengthened limbs. Before he throws the grenade, which it turns out is a dud, he says, Living underwater at incredible pressure has increased my strength. I pray to Neptune it's enough to clear this ridge in time. And then he throws the grenade. And that is just such a clear example of, like, the kind of self-narration that you get in radio dramas. It's cheesy, and I think it is bad writing, but it also made me very happy to see. Yep, I noted that as well. All right. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Aqualad? So in this issue for my Aqualad, despite the fact that she did allow Hawk to continue to fight and potentially make everything go sideways, I had Donna because I felt like she accepted all the responsibility that was put on her and still maintained a caring attitude towards everybody Mm -hmm. on the team. And in general, given the circumstances that she had and the team she had to work with, I felt did a pretty good job. And I think if she had told Hawk to stay inside, it would have not worked. I don't think Hawk would have figured out how to get onto the gondola without them. like (laughs) Or known where the summit was taking place i think she could have left him home oh no 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 i i I meant in that particular fight okay well we'll get back to donna later for my best teen titan my aqualad i had jason todd he continued to do a great job he continued to have a good attitude throughout i really like this depiction of jason todd which i continue to be surprised by There's not too much more to say about it, but he did a great job with acrobatics. He held his own in the fights. He tried to keep the mood light, even when that was maybe impossible. 
And at the end of the thing, he was like, hey, no, I had a great time. This was a fun adventure, which it wasn't. But you know what? Good for him. Yeah, that's a that's a solid choice. He was a runner up for me for all those reasons. And uh, that he was cracking jokes whilst in the midst of battle was refreshing. And they weren't creepy jokes, too, which was nice for a change of pace. Yeah, it was like the good old Robin with the puns and whatnot. Yeah, I also had as a backup Aqualad. I liked that he was able to put his personal demons behind him and be effective in a fight. Not as chatty as you would hope, but uh, he got to make use of his sea-strengthened arm, and I appreciated that. Conversely, for my Beast Boy, caused a little bit of an internal debate. I'm assuming you went with Hawk because he was fucking terrible. Is that the case? Yeah, I wrote his name down three times. That's how bad of a job he did. I agree. Hank did a terrible, terrible job in this issue. But if I am hired by a company to put together a team to accomplish a certain task, and I decide to hire my dog Finley as the team's accountant, yes, Finley is going to do a terrible job as an accountant, but which of us is really the worst employee? I vote for Donna as the beast boy of this issue because she chose to involve Hawk in a mission of international diplomacy and stealth. And of course he did a terrible job. How the fuck is he going to do a good job? He's Hawk. Yeah, that's fair. I guess she, in her defense, was framing things in the sense that when they had interacted before, maybe he did a bad job, but because of the interaction with Dove, um, it kind of held things in check, and it probably wasn't until things had already been set in motion she realized what a what a terrible choice she had made. Yeah, I think if we look back and even just remember previous portrayals of Hawk, yeah, I guess he's a little bit more extreme in this one, but... I wouldn't have hired Old Hawk to go on this mission either. It's a bad choice. It is outside of his skill set. Mm, it's outside some of his skill set. I, I think international diplomacy and stealth are entirely outside of his skill set. And he doesn't even have the benefit that Finley would as an accountant of it being adorable to watch him try. <laughs> he does not have that. That's, that's a fair point. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Wumshpoot! Again, doesn't really roll off the tongue, but in the year of our Lord 1987 and the month of our Lord August, what's Mr. Jupiter probably up to? We know what Aqualad's probably up to. Displaying his sea-strengthened limbs, moping, and throwing a grenade. But what's Mr. Jupiter probably up to? Well... Among his many interests as the richest and therefore most trustworthy man in the universe, he has a strong interest in language, language and culture, and um, how that feeds into diplomacy, economy, politics, and all this other stuff. And in the previous months and years, he had been keeping tabs on, sort of watching how things were unfolding in New Zealand, and had actually been contributing pretty big sums of money to various uh, folks and parties there who were interested in passing what, on August 1st of 1987, the Maori Language Act, 
was put into place, making the Maori language an official language of New Zealand, which then could be used in legal proceedings and things like that. So not at all that he's responsible for that taking place. It was due to the hard work of, of all the people there. But uh, definitely something that he was he was following and, you know, helping to fund some of the research and things like uh, other historical precedents that the, the folks arguing for it called upon, like uh, the Gaelic Language Act of 1978 in Ireland and the Welsh Language Act of 1967 in the UK. And that's what Mr. Jupiter was probably up to? Yeah, that's one of the things. Throwing some money around. Well, throwing some money around is certainly Mr. Jupiter's way. Mr. Jupiter was, in August of 1987, interested in protecting some investments of his. Some, maybe not entirely above the boards, investments of his. Mr. Jupiter, in his role as the wealthiest and therefore most trustworthy man in the world, had recently invested heavily in munitions. So, the idea of world peace, he's kind of in favor of it, in the abstract, but maybe if it could happen a few years down the road, that would suit him a little bit better, so that he can continue selling arms around the world. Also, despite his interest, as you pointed out last time, in the Grateful Dead, he's not that crazy about hippies. He remembers Lilith making him listen to The Doors back in the early 70s on repeat, and... If there is an opportunity that arises for him to kind of ruin a hippie's day, well, he's going to take it. So when he found out that August 16th was supposed to be the date of the harmonic convergence in which world peace could be achieved if 144,000 people were brought to special sites at Mount Shasta, Mount Fuji, and Mount Yamnasuki, he figured he better put a stop to that. The thing is, during his time working with the Teen Titans and specifically helping mentor Speedy, Mr. Jupiter got kind of an inflated sense of the world's interest in archery. So he decided to orchestrate some events that he thought would draw global attention elsewhere and keep people away from those mountains and uh, bringing forth the harmonic convergence that uh, was predicted to take place there by some new age types. So he orchestrated a crossbow event in which a crossbow bolt set the world record for traveling 2,005 yards. Uh, that was on August 1st by Harry Drake. And the next day, an event in which a handbow was shot 1,336 yards by Don Brown. Because he had been hanging out with Speedy during the 70s, he assumed that those incidents would just ignite the world's imaginations and everybody would just decide to go and watch archery instead of heading to those mountains. Didn't actually end up working out that way, but fortunately, the harmonic convergence was not a real thing. So... He got to keep selling his arms globally to everyone. Wow. <laughs> My goodness. So, yeah, I mean, that was what the world's richest and therefore most trustworthy man considered a happy ending. It's almost like the idea of a benevolent trillionaire isn't based in reality. Go figure. Anyway, 
That was Mr. Jupiter's month. Promoting archery, denouncing the harmonic convergence, and funding the Maori Language Act. Busy month. Busy month. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Corey. I had fun talking about this comic book with you. Likewise. And we hope that you will join us next week, listeners, when I will be joined by special guest Osvaldo Ayola, and we will talk about The Defenders number 76, featuring the start of a story arc about Omega the Unknown. Uh, I think that'll be a lot of fun, and I hope you'll tune in for that. Corey's going to be off. I, I understand you have plans to drink from an enchanted coffee cup and get lost in another dimension. I hope that works out well for you. Thanks. And you'll be back in two weeks and we'll talk about the next New Teen Titans adventure. See what that Church of Blood's up to. Sounds good. I bet it's something dastardly. That's my guess. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at... Tighten up the defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you would like to find us in some other places on the internet, well, you can probably do that. We're up on uh, Twitter, the Tumblr, the uh, grind em up the uh, Instagram, all of the internet places that you know and love. Just uh, type in the name Tighten Up the Defense and then scroll down until you get to a page that isn't about football and there will be. And if you can't find us there, hey, why not look inside yourself? Who's that? It's us. We're inside your heart. That's where we live. We got a second home there. We're waving. We're keeping tidy. We're doing an okay job, mostly. Sorry I ate some chips in there the other day. Hope that doesn't screw up your arterial blood flow. But if it does, I'm sure you'll get over it. If you would like to support the show monetarily, a great way to do that is to visit our site at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you donate there, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. I've been making video reviews of classic comic books almost every day. Uh, so there's a ton of those that are up. There's also the monthly podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. On that, we talk about Steve Gerber's Howard the Duck run in the 70s. And there's also a bunch of other bonus stuff up there. I think probably literally at this point, hundreds of hours of bonus material. So if you donate, you get access to all of that. But more importantly, it's just a really nice way to let us know that you appreciate what we do and would like us to continue doing it. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, a great way to do that is uh, leaving us a review in a place where reviews can be left. Like, you know, uh, iTunes or whatever iTunes is calling itself these days. Apple Music, maybe, something like that. Or whatever app you're using to listen to this show right now. Let's look at an example of a five-star review. The Aqualad of Podcasts. Five stars. Greatest podcast to ever feature a human man from Earth and his good-for-many-things brother. It is an adult comedy podcast for people that like laughing at the things we took seriously as children. I mean things that other people took seriously. Not me. I always knew how crazy this stuff was. Anyway, it's fun. And that is from Sterling Rat. 
Thank you, Sterling Rat. I appreciate that. And I am, indeed, a human man from Earth. So, well noted. And I am good for many things, also well noted. Yeah, is. you're paying attention. So if you're an eagle-brained listener like Sterling Rat, uh, why don't you leave us a five-star review? It's a nice way for people to find the show if uh, you think that's the sort of thing that they ought to do. And that's the way it goes in podcast town. <laughs> that's that's my new sign-off. Oh. Uh, okay. Pretty good, huh? Eh. Well, you got something better? Um, what do you, stow your brains where you sit? Oh. Wait, no. Ouch. Why are you trying to neg our listeners, Corey? Did, did you read, like, a pickup artist book? <laughs> I don't appreciate that. Oh, no, I sorry, I was talking to you. Um. Oh, hey, were you trying that? to neg me? <laughs> I'm your brother. No, I, I, I don't subscribe to that <laughs> approach to things. No, I was just right. looking at my notes, and that was the thing that jumped out at me. I don't know. Okay, yeah, no, stick with the podcast land thing. I don't remember what I said. Um, <laughs> okay, bye! Bye! And they knew it! Yeah, happy ending for Mr. Jupiter, the world's richest and therefore most trustworthy man in the world. That phrase didn't make any sense. I said the world twice. Ugh. Yeah, and uh, Mr. Jupiter, the world's richest and therefore world... I can't fucking talk. Um, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> relax, man. Relax. I'm trying, but I'm drinking so much half-calf coffee. <laughs>